Welcome to the sermon podcast of Compass Church. The message you're about to hear was given by Dr. Rod Casey, a member of Compass and director of the Theological Education Initiative. In this message from April 18th, Rod outlines the difference between agers and sagers, pulling wisdom from the Genesis account of Jacob on his deathbed. For more information, check out compassefc.com. Let's just uh, sit with that just for a moment. Uh, Father, thank you. Where would we be without you? Lord, had it not been for the intervention of your grace, some of us through hard circumstances, others of us because of a faithful family and a faith community that taught us these truths. And for your word that reminds us of the witnesses throughout the ages of people who have loved you and trusted you. Where would we be without you? The ancient of days is ever-present, not just around us, but even in us. Those of us who have said yes to your invitation, thank you for your good gifts to us. Guide our thoughts today, and may we hear your word. And uh, Lord, allow my speech to be clear, my thoughts, in order to, to remind us of our invitations and our challenge to live out your word in this way. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, everybody. You can be seated. For those of you that have not yet had the privilege of meeting, my name is Rod. Others of you would know me as Julie's husband. And uh, just a few important facts that you ought to know as I get started today. If I'd had better coaching, I would have played in the NBA or so I tell myself. I did once play basketball with the band members of Rascal Flats, Jay and Joe Don. Any Rascal Flats fans out there? So anyway, a uh, quick story about them. I was uh, coming down the court, and Jay, who's the bass player and keyboardist, he said to me, he said, oh, we don't play defense that way. They were on the road here at MU, and we don't play defense that way. And I was like, ha you know. I had no idea what he was talking about. So we came back down the court, and he stopped me. He goes, we don't play defense that way. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, one million, two million, three million. If he gets fingers jammed or broke, then he's out, right? They're insured. So I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, here, make your way to the basket. And I have a picture to prove it. So here's me with uh, Jay and Joe Don. My, uh, I'm the youngest of five, grew up in a parsonage of a pastor's family. My brother Ron liked to say that our parents raised me in their spare time, and he would say, you could see they didn't have much. Uh, as if that wasn't overwhelming enough already, then I was once ranked number 212 in We NBA on live play, and I once had 84 hoverboards in Subway Surfer, which is a children's gaming app. I know. Hold your applause, if you would, for a moment. At one time, I, uh, yeah, I asked if I could introduce myself today, and now you can see why, because I'm sure you'll agree that's a lot more interesting than telling you that I lead a, 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 a not-for-profit answer to the lack of a seminary in Central Missouri called the Theological Education Initiative, and that I read theological journals as a hobby, boring, 
And in this season of our lives, my wife and I have the privilege of walking alongside uh, ministry leaders, trying to be for them the kind of mentors that we always wished we had had during our own years of pastoring. Uh, We've made Compass our home church for the last three years, though we've spent this last one sitting outside or downstairs or early on at home. So it's good to be back in big church today. Can I get an amen on that? And uh, we moved into a new home to us in 2017, and in that new home was a resource that I didn't know we needed. And you're like, "Uh, there's an appliance I'm not aware of, and I think there may be. Now, we didn't, I wasn't familiar with it other than when I was a kid, I remember being at my cousin's house, married woman in Texas, and they had one of these, but the house we moved into had one, and I'm absolutely crazy about it. It's a resource called a trash compactor. Now, you know this controversy related to the bags in the city of Columbia. Of course, you do, and how many bags you, it's not a problem for me. I have one receptacle in the garage, and that takes, you know, all the bones and the stuff and the grandkids' diapers, and that goes out there. And then I've got this trash compactor. I only have to change it once a week because you just hit the button. Now, the thing weighs in and of itself. I think in and of itself, it already crosses the limits of the city of Columbia. I'm using one bag a week. I just stick it in the other bag. I have to get a dolly to take it to the street. But this trash compactor is amazing. There is a similar resources that exist here and in our community. By here, I mean Compass family. And in our community as a whole. That I think is equally and even better than a trash compactor that far too often we might neglect. We might forget how valuable it is. And it is simply this. Compass Church and in our community are individuals who are aging, but aging well. I like to call that saging. They are becoming the sagers among us. Now, the youngers might think, well, what's so hard about that? (laughs) To grow older and to stay kind, to stay others-oriented, to, uh, to not want your own way, to have the world shift and change around you, to be able to hear people use technological words that you don't know what they're talking about, or from, for them to, to sort of laugh, as cute as it may be, about your flip phone that you still carry. I mean, to grow older with increased aches and pains, Like I'm nursing a back that a doctor told me years ago is deteriorating at a rate equal to your age. Thank you very much, doctor. So today I have a stool here just in case I need to rest it in order to not get overwhelmed by the the reality and the mindset of the pain. To grow older, I'm telling you, can I get an amen? To grow older... And to grow tender-hearted, to not get bitter and selfish and demand your own preferences is quite a feat. And there are a lot of them around here who work hard at it. But it is a great temptation to simply do what you can do at any age. And that is to just be a participant in aging. 
Now, here's some of the qualities of aging. Uh, you may know them as the seven deadly sins. I'm going to describe them as many people's aging creed. It goes like this. I refuse to, to keep learning or take instruction. I wish I had what other people have. I use anger to attack people instead of the problem. I have no passion, no initiative, no interest to explore. I care no longer to make a difference. I never have enough. I excessively consume good things that I want to pursue, like leisure and television and golf and stock trading or food. And I still refuse to accept my own sexual limits. You can see this is not simply determined by chronological age. It's not simply reserved for the seniors. Aging can be true of any age if we decide in order just to give ourselves over to what the Scripture calls the lusts of the flesh, to what we want to do. But there's a resource among us, and that is those who are growing older while seeking to continue to commit to being Christianly. And it's rare. It's rare. But it's a commodity that when you find it, I want to encourage us today and to see in the scriptures where this kind of thing happened, where the youngers continue to find the sages among us and to access them as a resource. And if we don't, if the youngers don't access it, then they may hit some complications in life that could be avoided. They may not fulfill their contribution themselves to become sages and, and to be participants in the common good for the sake of God's purposes. And you know what the sages do? They grow old and bitter, and they divide and conquer and are mean and selfish. So today I'm simply here as a reminder to say to what's already been happening, but to encourage myself and others to say, hey, let's, let's continue to sage, not just age. And a word to the youngers and some words to the olders in order to make that happen. What kind of older sage might a younger seek out? What kind of help might a sager actually offer that's helpful? For an answer, we're going to consider the story of Jacob, one of the patriarchs from the pages of Genesis on his deathbed, and the ways in which he interacts with his son Joseph and Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And in this passage of Scripture, what I want to show you today is that Jacob, on his deathbed, as he's about to die, he does three things that model for us what sagers ought to continue to be about and what youngers ought to seek to access. And in this passage of Scripture, we see that there are these three things that we all can do. So, if you would, as is our practice around here, turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 47. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, if not, you can just listen on. Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 28. Chapter 47 and verse 28. And when you found it on your phone or in your 
hard copy, then stand with me if you would, and let's, let me read. Verse 28, chapter 47. Jacob lived in Egypt. Seven, how come these, how come this um, type is growing smaller and people are mumbling more? Hey, hey, hey. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. Some ushers escort him out. And the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Jacob, who was renamed Israel by God to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, then this was a common practice of um, making this kind of commitment. Put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and be full of faith. That's a key word, full of faith, or be faithful in your faith. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, he said, bury me where they are buried. I will do as you, he, as you say, Joseph said. Swear to me, he said, and Joseph swore to him. And Israel then did what? Worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In this passage, in the end of chapter 47, we see the first thing that Jacob is mindful of. Now, just to recapture the story for those of you who may not know it, there's a lot of uh, details here about essentially how the grandfather, Abraham, is being invited by God to recreate God's purposes, which were originally intended in the land of Eden, for them to find a place outside of coming outside of this, the secular world of Ur that Abraham lived in. And he continues to say first to Abraham, hey, what you need to do is to, you know, follow me as Yahweh God and then through me be a blessing to all the nations and to live out the covenant that I've made with you. And the same for Isaac, and now the same for Jacob. Now, Jacob's particular story is curious because Jacob has similar kind of dysfunctional, generational sin that, and uh, consequences of his actions that his um, father and grandfather had. Uh, Jacob, though, uh, my interpretation is that Jacob has uh, the right longings. He wants to be a patriarch, but he continues to manipulate and to try to get those good purposes done his own way. That may not sound familiar to you, but I can resonate with the idea of I want something that's good, but I seek it out in my own way, even if it's something as religious as Jacob wanted to do, which was to be faithful to his fathers, to the patriarchy, to being a good people. But we find him throughout his story twisting things, manipulating, in fact, cheating his brother and with the participation of his mother out of a birthright. And there's all kinds of complications related to his father-in-law, Laban. And then he gets cheated himself and finally ends up where, where he walks with a limp. And that the angel of the Lord met with him. And at that point, he surrendered his life to the tree of life instead of to the knowledge of right and wrong. Again, reflecting back to Eden. 
He finally comes to a place of surrender where he's going to shift from aging to saging and to find that ultimately it's about committing your life to asking God, what would you have me to do, not simply what, what should I do? And so they now find this unexpected twist and turn where through a series of circumstances, his family lands in Egypt and under his son Joseph's administration, they're going to be protected as a people. And Jacob at the end of his life is spending 17 years living in this foreign land, this unknown place. But he never forgets the bigger story. And the bigger story is, is that we're a people, and as a people, we serve a God, and therefore our operating system is different than Egypt's is and the surrounding nations, and we behave in different kind of ways because of that, and we view ourselves differently than what the other nations see themselves as. And, and also, ultimately, we entrust ourselves to saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? God, what is your will, not our way? And so he says to Joseph, hey, promise me, promise me, pinky swear, promise me, that you will take my bones back and bury them because that represents the kind of person and the kind of people and the kind of God that we serve. Uh, Pastor Craig, frankly, has been very helpful to me in understanding that this idea of the land is, is more than just simply geographical space. We think about going back to the farm or to our hometown, and it evokes various memories. You know, my, uh, my parents have had this generation, their parents had it, uh, this farm for that kind of thought. And even for many of us city dwellers, that's hard to comprehend. But it's so much more than just physical. It's, again, the kind of family that they are, but it's the kind of God that they serve, and it's the kind of commitment that they're, they're making to essentially recapture what was lost in Genesis 1 and 2. And what was lost in Genesis 1 is living within your limits and entrusting yourself and your security and your value and your identity to Jesus, to, to the one who's coming, to, to, to Yahweh God. So um, instead, we try to make life up like we should. And so we may be in Egypt now. So tell the bigger story is what Jacob does. Tell the bigger story. Sagers remind their family members, hey, we have a story, but we're a part of a bigger story. And our bigger story your story, regardless of what your parents and grandparents and their generations did, it's your commitment to keep coming back to Eden and eating from the right tree, not the other tree. And that right tree is to say, Lord, what would you have us to do? Not how did grandma and grandpa do it? Remind us of the bigger story. And then from there about the kind of people that we are. Our family are generous 
with internationals and refugees. We're the kind of family who likes to take on adventure. We're the kind of family that doesn't hoard but shares. We're the kind of family that engages in our neighborhood. We're the kind of family that doesn't just live for these kinds of aging, seven deadly sins, but instead we live within our limits and we walk with God. We find in chapter 48, the second part, the second thing I want to suggest that Jacob models here to Joseph and his two sons, and that is that he tells the whole story. In other words, what I'm saying is, sagers, tell the bigger story. Remind the next generation we live within a larger story, God's story, but also be sure and say to them, hey, I have a story, and tell the rest of the story. Ah, uh, you know, you could tell the, the parts that were like, oh, yeah, we, I got that right. But can you also share in age-appropriate ways in the right settings to the next generation? Yeah, I tried to get a good thing in a, in a wrong way. Can you tell the parts that you experienced things in ways that... Can you tell the rest of it? We find that chapter 48 where Jacob reflects back. Now there, your two sons born to you. He makes comments there. I'm beginning in verse 5. Skip down to 7. As I was returning from Paddan to my surprise, that was up north Lebanon, Syria, that area. And while I was coming back towards Jerusalem and Bethlehem, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, while we were still on the way, a little distance from Bethlehem, so I buried her there. Now, Jacob, Israel, is reflecting back on this season of life, and rabbis suggest that the Hebrew interplay that we read here of To My Sorrow is reflecting Jacob saying more than just, I'm grieving that Rachel died or it makes me very sad, but that he's actually, whether false guilt or true guilt, he's actually taking responsibility for his beloved wife's death. So I'm surmising here, but I think it makes the illustration, and it, it may be the case. It's possible. Now, I'm now surmising as to why that may have been true. Uh, through a series of circumstances, he had had a wife, and that wife had ten sons. Then he had another wife, and that one was his quote-unquote favorite wife. And this one, um, he had two sons. She was 20 years, Rachel was 20 years infertile. And it's suggested, I'm suggesting, that there were so many problems with Joseph's de uh, birth that when she died giving birth to Benjamin, the, the other son, that it was actually somehow in, in terms of Joseph's insistence that his favorite wife bear him yet more children. But for some reason, there's this idea that Jacob is saying, I feel badly. Maybe it was the, maybe it was the trip. Maybe it was... Um, the dynamics of the kind of person that he was, but he's saying to Joseph and his sons on his deathbed, let me tell you the rest of the story. And his whole story is, I didn't wait on God. God made some promises, but I, I in my earlier years, kept kind of doing it my way. 
Are we as sages willing to tell the rest of the story? Are we willing to share with the next generation the ways in which we've experienced hurts and pains and, and also to take responsibility for our part in it and not just justify it? Sagers tell a bigger story Sagers tell all the story, the whole story, in appropriate ways. And finally, we see the third thing that sagers do is what Jacob models at the end of chapter 48 when a very curious thing happens, and it goes like this. Joseph now brings his two sons, and they are sons, curiously enough, they are sons of northern African mother Egypt. And that's just interesting of itself. It points to some of the realities of African Israelites, uh, the, uh, the darker skins reality and the inclusion and all of that. And so they are now coming to him and Joseph is blessing these two sons. And of course, Joseph, the right hand represents a kind of preferential way in their culture. And so he sets the older Manasseh at Jacob's right hand, and Ephraim the younger at the left hand. And it says this, look with me, um, verse 13, And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right and, Is and Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand. And he brought them close. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger violating cultural norms and he crossed his arms and he put his left hand on Manasseh's head even though Manasseh was the firstborn and then he blessed them and if you skip down you see that in chapter uh, verse 18 48 Joseph said to him no my father you're doing it wrong this one is the firstborn put your right hand on his head but his father refused and said I know what I'm doing. I know my son, I know. Jacob had a sense from the Spirit and his foreseeing the future that it was needful or it was God's will that Ephraim would receive a kind of blessing that was unique and he he broke cultural norm and preferences, and things got done a little differently. And therefore, Ephraim generation led to the, to the successor of Moses named Joshua. And here the African nation is getting included in some ways. Catch this. This is so fascinating. The Orthodox Jew parents still today, for some every Friday and for others once a year, they do what this passage says they will do when they bless their own children. May you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. And here's the motivation they do it in. One is the motivation for, for saying it still is that they're saying, may Ephraim and Manasseh get along together like Jacob and Esau struggled to do and like Isaac and Ishmael struggled to do. 
may Ephraim and Manasseh have sibling unity instead of division. Jacob may be mixing things up in order to sort of unite instead of divide the siblings. And the second reason that they bless them is because they're saying to them, even though we live in a secular world, may you be a faithful, Torah-keeping Jew living out your values in spite of the culture that surrounds you. Ephraim and Manasseh, may you live out these bigger story purposes as you hear my story, may you be encouraged to entrust yourself to our God and live out his ways in spite of what the culture may be telling you. And may you primarily be prepared. What Jacob is saying here is there are unexpected twists and turns. Sagers, prepare the next generation in your mentoring in order to prepare them for their stories unexpected. Now, here's a silly question for the olders among us. Did life go the way you thought it would? <laughs> Did you have any sort of expectations in your mind? My, my wife reminded me as we sat together this morning meditating in Scripture and prayer, and she said to me, you know, the very fact that you're giving this sermon at Compass is an unexpected twist, isn't it? Yeah. We have things in our mind about how it's going to go, the way our future's going to hold. And this is what olders and aging people have to navigate is that Jacob is reflecting, hey, there's some surprises I crossed my hands on purpose. There's a preparation that things aren't going to go according to the cultural norm. So therefore, we live out The bigger story by telling our story, and we invite others to surrender to the unexpected story. One of the ways that I, we read Scripture is by looking back, up, out, and in. I want to do that for you for a moment, and I'll explain what I mean by each. By looking back, we read Scripture and say, what were the first-time hearers or readers of the text getting from this? What I've said is, the sager Jacob told the youngers, Joseph, his sons, Manasseh, and Ephraim, a bigger story. He told them his story, and he told them the need to surrender to their stories unexpected. To look up, what does this say about God? I think it's this. God's providence is intricately intertwined with our agency, meaning we're human agents participating, and God's providence is also interacting intricately with that for the common good that fulfills his purposes. God gets his purposes done in this kind of mysterious way through our full engagement of human agency. But there's also God's providence. To say, what does that say to us? You've heard me say it several times today. Find sagers, youngers, who foster your faith by telling you a bigger story. God's story, their story, and preparing you for your own stories unexpected. And if you're a sager, you don't have permission to, quote, unquote, quit working hard to be a Christian. Like, hey, it's your day, bride. 
tell you what, act however you want. Right? We wouldn't say that, would we? We, we would be like, I think the expectation, the invitation, the challenge is act like a Christian every day. So brides have to live out the fruit of the Spirit even on their wedding day. Now let's make it a little more. My back hurts this week. And my family, particularly my wife, has had to navigate my increased incapacities and my shortness of temper. But I don't give myself permission to not continue to work hard in spite of the pain. And that's the resource that I'm talking about that exists here. There are a lot of people in here who are saging by working hard to remain tenderhearted. And when you meet them, they care about being a Christian in spite of their grief of a loss of a loved one, in spite of the difficulties and twists and turns and medical conditions that they've been faced with. They are committed to finishing life, may I quote a cliche, better instead of bitter. And they are to be not just affirmed and appreciated, but we need to Ask them, sit together and say, how do you do that? And aspire to it. For me personally, my reoriented present makes sense of my foundational orientation. In other words, my present realities make complete sense as I've reflected on my earlier years. In spite of the disoriented experiences that got me here. Let me illustrate that. Two weeks ago, Monday, we had a service for my wife's mother back in our hometown of Festus, Crystal City. I was talking to Carrie, who we went to high school with, and I said, Carrie, how is uh, your mother-in-law, Mrs. Alford? She said, oh, she's sitting right there. I said, oh. So I excused myself. I walked over. I knelt down. I said, Mrs. Alford, I'm sorry I didn't see you. She said, I wondered when you were going to speak to me. I said, well, you look so young and much better looking than you used to be. I didn't, I didn't see you. She immediately says to her two friends sitting next to her, this young man, when I taught him in Sunday school, said to me, you're telling the story wrong. I kind of laughed, but she continued. She said, but I was a new Christian. I didn't mind. Don't miss this. She said, I didn't mind. He said, I just said to him, well, you tell it then. And he did. Now, for those of you who know me, I was like, I said to her, what you know. That's my whole life. Getting this story right, seeing it well, and telling people when they get it wrong. <laughs> but did you notice Mrs. Offord's posture? What might she have done? Instead, I said, was I in the third grade or earlier? She said, not older than third grade. Her posture was, you tell it then. I was a new Christian. I was a new Christian. Do you see how she gave in to what God was doing in my life rather than her sounding smart? She wanted to sound helpful. You see how she let go of her preferences and her vulnerabilities in order to remain teachable and to still tell that story? My high school influence 
was an electrician for a living. He climbed poles for Union Electric. But he gave himself to a bunch of kids every weekend and more. And he said to me when I was a junior in high school, you're going to teach next week at Greg's house for the youth Bible study, and your passage is Hebrews 6. Now, for those of you who know what Hebrews 6 is, it's the passage that is one of the hardest in the Bible, and it's about how you might lose your faith, but maybe you don't, but if you, if you do this, you could. And, and he threw this eternal security thing at me, and apparently I dealt with it because we laughed about it a couple of weeks ago. And something rose up in me while I was teaching through that experience that Bob saw in me and he said, hey, you can do this. And again, that has been foundational. My present life and the ways that my life has gone is true to my core orientation, but it has been full of some disorientation of where it landed. Do you think words from an older mentor mean anything? Well, here's stationary from a mentor of mine, a professor in my seminary that I've kept on my desk now for 35 years. Rod, at a recent department, at a recent pastoral ministries department meeting, we were thinking about our pastoral ministries majors and realizing how much esteem we had for some of them. The department asked if I would invite you on their behalf to tell you that we have a high regard for your godly character and your encouraging spirit, and we expect that God will give you a useful and joyful ministry. God bless you, Rod Don Sanukian. Had I not walked with Don from a distance all through the years and showed him this plaque, he might have just thought, well, I was just fulfilling the assignment of the pastoral ministries department. But it has guided me to have an encouraging spirit, to be faithful to the Lord. Because someone that I looked up to, a sage, says to me, you can finish well. And there's some things that that sage has to do. She or he has to remember the bigger story, the God story, the eternal story. They got to tell the whole story. They, they, they need to be willing to say, and I got some things goofy, and I didn't follow the Lord and entrust myself to him in the ways that I wish he had. <laughs> and also, they need to come alongside and say, and there's going to be some twists. There's going to be some unexpected. You're going to hit, you're going to hit a tsunami. What I call, you're going to get the snot knocked out of you. And that's when your metal is going to be tested in major ways. And they're going to say to us, but there's a bigger story, and there's my story, and now you've got to walk out your story. Are you going to be faithful to it? So what might keep some sages from being helpful? If you're committed to not just aging, but you're committed to growing wiser, you didn't know you could take initiative with younger people and say to them, hey, could we sit together? Sagers may, not, sagers may fear not feeling respected if you do or risk rejection. And it feels vulnerable to tell your story. Besides, you wouldn't even know who to help. 
you know, they're looking, as always, as all faith communities are, looking for volunteers and youth and children in the nursery. These are the stories that impacted my life, just like some of you could tell stories of your life. It's because people like Mrs. Offord shared their story with you. So this is what we do. Can we go on a youth trip? Can we do for one what we wish we could do for everyone? So sagers, sign up. Be helpful. What might keep youngers from asking? You didn't know you could ask. You weren't aware that it was a resource to take advantage of. You you fear, watch this, sagers, the youngers fear getting told what to do. Instead of being asked, how can I be helpful? Oh, can I get a witness on that or no? Do we share our preferences? Do we tell? Do do we advise? Or do we walk with and consult? There's a difference. Well, I don't like that kind of music. Or I don't like that kind of talk. Or I don't know your technology. Youngers also know it feels vulnerable to share their story. They wouldn't know what to ask. So let me give you some help through a template. You might want to take out your phone and take a picture of this, or perhaps uh, our communications, Molly, could send this out to us. But I think it's a very simple template you'll pick up on. But before I want to do, I want to say something to never do. Never do when you're mentoring. Never, ever either say to them, Let's get together every Wednesday. What I mean by that is, allow yourself to instead live out for a reason for a season. So I say to my mentees instead, hey, look, I am on the 30-year plan at this point, and I'll be here. So let's engage as long as you have questions, and I think I can be helpful. And if you ask a question that I think so-and-so could be helpful, then I'll take you to them instead. I'm here as a broker of the resources, so let's sit together as long. But to be in a long-term relationship where at 7.30 on Wednesday you're thinking, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I commit, but I don't know how to get out of this because I think they want me there. Don't do that. Some of you have been in small groups like that where you know that everybody's thinking the same thing. How are we ever going to stop? And you're waiting for Christmas so you can, right? Okay, so don't do that. Just say to them, hey, let's walk. Can we sit together this time? When you're done with that or you think you got more to say, more help to give, want to sit with them again, then you just say, all right, well, let's get together next time. Or I think I got four weeks in me. And then we'll call a halt or we'll run through the summer and then stop. Now, here's the template. For the younger, you just simply say, hey, Sager, tell me a story from your story. Hey, tell me about that. And then you say, tell me more about that because they have gone here before they go here, before we're willing to go here. Will you be patient with us as we tell the whole story? So keep appropriately asking for the rest of the story. And then you can say, Tell me another story. Now, what you're picking up on is I've got, I've got challenges in my own life, and I'd like to hear their story. Now, for the sager, it's just simply this. Hey, can we sit together? What's challenging you these days? That's the key. What's challenging you? 
I've done this so many times now, it's just part of my regular routine. Hey, what's challenging? If I know what's been challenging, I ask for an update on what's been challenging. Hey, what's challenging you these days? Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. How could I be helpful? How could I be helpful to you? I No kidding, I said this to a teenager just a few weeks ago. I do for one what I wish I could do for many, or for a few what I do, wish I could do for many. And we were in the middle of something, and he was finally, after a year and a half, we were reflecting on something. And I said, how could I be helpful? God is my witness. This 16-year-old, he says to me, you could just sort of share your experiences. Give me some of your thoughts about what you think about how I might do that. Like, I'm in. Now, here's a word. When we meet, we, we love to, to meet the challenge, right? So we like to be the answer people. I do. I love to be the answer man to these situations. But get this. It's not just about the challenge. It's about the relationship that goes with it. Did you hear what I said? You did, didn't you? After meeting a year and a half, maybe two years, finally I'm, we're saying, because because you're never stopped as a sager from just loving the youngers, as you do. Again, this is the challenge is, is it's happening, and it's just a reminder to keep doing it. And that is to say, you know what? I love you. I pray for you. I sit with you. I buy lunch and coffee and breakfast, and, 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 and I send you texts and include you. You see, people, people who, to whom they feel attached have the greatest capacity to be helped by you if you have fed them and loved them and they see a twinkle in your eyes when they see you, not for, for us to control them or tell them how they ought to do it or to insist that they give in to our preferences. And then finally, it's what else is challenging you these days? Be careful about not telling them what to do. You can always share what you're feeling Share your experiences, your principles, priorities, and practices. Keep asking questions as sagers. Tell the bigger story. Tell your story. And invite the future generations to surrender to the unexpected in their story. May I invite you to, uh, oh, before I pray, there's a required reading, question mark, for everyone who's 55 and older. And it's Aging Matters by Paul Stevenson. Aging Matters. It's a wonderful resource. Pastor Jamie Page gave it to me, said, you're required to read it. I'm so glad I did. And it helps to navigate growing older in the kinds of ways. So as this resonates with you, I commend that resource to you. I want you to pray with me this nun's prayer. So whether it's just listening or perhaps even closing your eyes. Its date is the 17th century, but I think you'll agree it's timeless. And it goes like this. Lord, thou knowest better than I know myself that I am growing older and will someday be old. Keep me from the fatal habit of thinking I must say something on every subject and on every occasion. Release me from craving to straighten out everybody else's affairs. 
Make me thoughtful but not moody, helpful but not bossy. With my vast store of wisdom, it seems a pity not to use it all, but thou knowest, Lord, that I want a few friends at the end. Keep my mind from the recital of endless details. Give me wings to get to the point. Lord, would you help me seal my lips on my aches and pains? They are increasing, and my love of rehearsing them is becoming sweeter as the years go by. I dare not ask for grace enough to enjoy the tales of others' pains, but help me to endure them with patience. I don't ask for improved memory, but for a growing humility and a lessening sureness when my memory seems to clash with the memories of others around me. And teach me that glorious lesson that occasionally I may be mistaken. And Lord, would you keep me reasonably sweet? I don't want to be a saint. Some of them are so hard to live with. But a sour old person is one of the crowning works of the devil. And give to me, Lord, the ability to see good things in unexpected places. And see the talents in unexpected people. And give me, Lord, the grace to tell them so. Amen. I wonder if today... If we're aging or saging, would we recommit ourselves or to remind ourselves? Lord, it's hard. So tempted to go inside to say, I've done enough. It's somebody else's issues. But would you remind us that there's no retirement with you? There's only just how we get paid to meet our bills. Would you allow us to have the fruit of the Spirit all the way to the end of our lives? And if you're a younger, would you commit to these same purposes to not live your life according to comfort and to be willing to ask for help from the appropriate people in the right way to say, could you tell me your story? Could you tell me the bigger story? Would you walk with me through the unexpected twist of my story. God, thank you for this community of faith and our local one here at Compass. May we continue to be the people who set aside our own preferences to look to you for what you're doing for the sake of future generations and their faithfulness as well. Thank you for these instructions through the biblical author and the life of Jacob and his dying words. Remind us who we are because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon is part of the ministry of Compass Evangelical Free Church in Columbia, Missouri. We seek to be a church where Christ's love is at work transforming lives through the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. For more information, check out compassefc.com.